HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. So, I have a soda stream. It makes some crazy sounds like this. I thought I could take those crazy sounds and make a whole beat out of them. And it went like this. And yes, plenty of seltzer was consumed in the making of this cold open. That was HRN intern and engineer Armin Spengen, a.k.a. DJ Armin Hammer, making some fire beats out of his soda stream. If you listen closely, you can hear the hissing of pressure being released and bubbly carbon dioxide rushing into the water. When you think of bubbles, what pops into your mind? Is it rainbow-colored soap? Carbonated soda? perhaps even social distancing bubbles? This week, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We are talking about how to make bubbles, how to eat them, and the unexpected ways in which they've shaped our culture and history. We're looking at how the pandemic led to a domino effect from a gasoline decrease to a CO2 shortage and eventually a craft beer crisis. But bubbles aren't just limited to the type that make you burp. Diving to the bottom of a cup of delicious bubble tea, we examine what lies at the core of the popular drink. Finally, we take it back to a bubbly classic, seltzer, and examine its significance in New York City. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up, we'll hear from Cameron Berger and Sasha Cohen about the 2020 CO2 shortage that carbonation enthusiasts narrowly dodged with the help of some industry intervention. What are some of your favorite beverages? Huge Diet Coke girl. Love me some Diet Coke. I just had a Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. The flavor was like, uh, they have a new watermelon flavor. 
Now, if you had to say, uh, where do you think the bubbles in those drinks come from? <laughs> Is this like a fart joke or something? I don't know. Carbonation. <laughs> A bubble is the the product of a chemical reaction uh, based on something that some scientists did in a lab. It seems safe to say that most of us haven't thought much about where carbonation comes from. To find out, I spoke to Rich Gottwald. He's the president and CEO of the Compressed Gas Association, and he's used to people taking that industry for granted. And virtually anything you come in contact with during the day, somehow compressed gas is used probably in the manufacturing of it, the transportation of it. We're called the invisible industry because these products, compressed gases, you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. One major source of CO2 for the food and beverage industry is the production of ethanol, an alcohol which is blended into gasoline. Instead of releasing CO2 from ethanol plants into the atmosphere, the compressed gas industry works to capture, clean, liquefy, and distribute this invisible product. So when COVID first hit back in March of 2020, those first few days, first few months really of COVID were really interesting times because in many ways the the states, the industry, the world sort of shut down and people stopped driving. When they stopped driving, that meant they stopped purchasing gasoline. When they stopped purchasing gasoline, that meant the demand for ethanol went down. So ethanol plants started to either reduce their, you know, their running or shut down altogether. When that happened, that impacted our ability to pull CO2 off of those plants. And so when that happened, suddenly the, uh, the food and beverage market were being impacted. In late March of 2020, a group of industry representatives came together and wrote a letter to the White House, urging a response to what they saw as an impending crisis. Grocery shortages loomed large over the country, and CO2 availability affects more than just beer and soda. Meat processors use CO2 as a gas to stun birds before slaughter in an effort to make the process more humane. They also rely on CO2 to chill ground meat before it's formed and packaged and as a refrigerant in advanced freezers and refrigerators. A shortage of industrial CO2 puts all these processes in jeopardy. But ultimately, the demand for CO2 was not as high as they anticipated. With stadium events and festivals being canceled all across the country, people just weren't consuming bubbles at the same rate they were before the pandemic. We learned to live with COVID and people started going back to some of their regular routines, which meant the demand for gasoline went up, which meant the demand for ethanol and suddenly CO2 is becoming more available again. So things balanced out again as we moved into summer of 2020. Though Rich may call it the invisible industry, compressed gases do have a tangible impact on people's lives. So although, you know, beverages may not be viewed as the most critical component in, in the midst of, let's say, COVID or any other disaster, the industry is huge, right? It employs people. Uh, it's a big, it's a significant part of the economy. So who would ever think that the ability to get a soda uh, would be dependent on someone filling up their, their car with gas uh, across the country. 
While the market for carbon dioxide has mostly returned to normal, last year's shortage may have a lasting impact on the craft beer industry. Matt Patterson, HRN's head of audio, has the story. If you ask somebody, what are the ingredients in beer, you'll probably hear something like... Malted barley, water, yeast, and hops. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah, hey, uh, I'm Alan Brinton. I'm the founder of Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island and South County Distillers. Graysale has been brewing beer since 2011 and distributes throughout New England. 2011 also happens to be the year that I got my first paid position in a brewery. You see, I actually brewed beer professionally for five years before switching to audio. In my time in the industry, I attended dozens of talks and even entire conferences focused on any one of those ingredients that Alan mentioned. But back on the brewery floor, we added carbon dioxide to our beer every single day, and I never once thought about where that CO2 came from. And I know I was not alone in that. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. So now, after the COVID-related CO2 shortages... Alan thinks about carbon dioxide very differently. It is a critical ingredient in the beer. You know, we experienced several shutdowns um, over the course of COVID because of, you know, running out of carbon dioxide. And when we run out of carbon dioxide, we can't package our beer. Because of the way that it's used in a brewery, brewers tend to think about carbon dioxide as more of a tool than an ingredient. But CO2 can make a significant flavor contribution to beer. To learn more about that, I spoke with Chuck Skypeck of the Brewers Association, a trade organization promoting American breweries. It's in all beers, and not only does it provide the the carbonation in the bubbles, but it's going to add to mouthfeel. It's going to add to body. That sounds like an ingredient to me. Chuck explained that CO2 is expensive to ship, so it generally doesn't travel far from its source. Specific sources and prices vary widely depending on where you are in the country. The origins of your CO2, whether it came from ethanol production or a fertilizer plant or an oil refinery, can be important. All of those different processes come with different, for lack of a better word, contaminants that are unique to that process. And we're not talking about things that are dangerous here, but things that can actually affect the flavor of the beer. So when a brewer switches from one source of CO2 to another, they may find very different flavor outcomes associated with their source of CO2. And that would be anything from uh, medicinal flavors, musty flavors. Think about uh, flavors associated with, say, petroleum So while some brewers had to shut down operations for lack of CO2, others experienced big price jumps or had to use CO2 from alternative sources that could introduce new flavors to their beer. This was an industry-wide wake-up call. When your supply gets cut off, you you tend to learn really fast, right? And, And so brewers are looking for other ways to ensure their supply. At Graysale, Allen took advantage of a newly available option for craft brewers looking to take control of their supply. The system itself basically takes the carbon dioxide gas that comes off of the fermentations, takes that, it compresses it, it liquefies it, so that way we can store it and reuse it again as our raw material. The system he's describing is called carbon dioxide capture. The basic idea is this. During fermentation, yeast creates CO2 while they create alcohol. 
But if brewers don't allow that CO2 to leave the tanks, it negatively affects the fermentation and flavor. So in a small brewery, that CO2 just gets released to the atmosphere. And when it comes time for packaging, brewers have to purchase and pump in a bunch of other CO2 to carbonate their beer. Carbon dioxide capture is basically recycling, but for a gas. You capture CO2 early, clean it, store it, and put it back in the beer later on. By turning their own fermentations into their CO2 supplier, breweries know that they'll never run out and can count on consistent costs. Even then, it's a significant investment. The system costs in the ballpark of $100,000. My return on investment, I expect it to be in the three to five year range. The process of carbon capture is not new. It's been in use for decades, but was previously cost-effective only for the largest commercial breweries. Graysale is one of the earliest adopters amongst craft breweries. What's new is being able to do it at our scale, because you know, if you've ever been to an Anheuser-Busch plant, a hundred of my breweries would fit inside of an Anheuser-Busch plant, if not more. It's only within the past five years that startup manufacturers have been able to scale down this technology for use in smaller facilities. And I don't want to leave you with the impression that every craft brewer has switched to CO2 capture. There are now more than 8,000 breweries in the United States, and the vast majority look more like Graysale than they do Anheuser-Busch. The number of breweries that are using this technology is still in the dozens, not the thousands. But it is clear that the pandemic has made craft brewers rethink their relationship to CO2, catalyzing a shift towards a more sustainable craft beer industry and, possibly, a more nuanced conception of beer itself. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, we're taking a look at a different kind of bubble, the chewy tapioca kind that can be found at the bottom of a cup of bubble tea or as it's more commonly known, boba. Alicia Chan and Tao V. Duong explore the history of boba in the U.S. and how this sweet drink has grown into a symbol of Asian American pride. If you're an avid boba drinker like Alicia and me, you might be familiar with those sounds. From where we grew up in the Bay Area, it isn't hard to find a boba shop every few blocks. The original drink comes from Taiwan, and in its most basic form, milk tea, is made of black tea, creamer, syrup, and tapioca balls. And it's interesting that for me that also boba appears to have first entered the United States in San Gabriel Valley of um, East L.A., which was one of the first true suburban Chinatown. That's Robert Koo. I'm currently a professor of... Asian American Studies at the Binghamton University of the State University of New York. 
When boba first made its way to the U.S. in the early 1990s, it was served as just another drink on the menu at Taiwanese restaurants. It wasn't until the end of the decade that the first boba dedicated shop opened up in the 626 area code of Los Angeles, a few miles east of downtown LA. Today, there are thousands of boba shops across the U.S. with established chains like Kung Fu Tea and Tenren Tea. In fact, it's so popular that in 2020, a boba emoji was released. So even if you don't know what boba is, your phone probably does. That's quite interesting. That of all the Asian marked sort of businesses, other than restaurant, other than Chinese food, but other than that. Uh, boba shop seems to be the most、um, widely、uh, run operation in in around where young Asian Americans、uh, congregate, and so university college towns seems to be a place where、um, you often find these stores. As Robert notes, boba's main demographic seems to be young Asian Americans, whose affection for the drink runs deeper than the bottom of the cup. Yeah, I think it's a sort of source of pride and source of like identity and community, especially those boba shops. Young people go and hang out, and I think it's emerged as a boba tea shops, a site of Asian American youth、uh, identity building. I think, and it's one of the few sites that I can, I, I, I would say, has that characteristic. Boba is not just a beverage; it's an icon. Marketed as an accessible piece of Asian American culture, boba can be found in the form of stickers, keychains, earrings, and even songs. It's that at the level of pride in that sense,、um, and in the similar way, I think a lot of Asian Americans find in boba this symbol of Asian Americanness, of sort of in-group kind of pride as well. Despite its iconic status, boba doesn't go by just one name. I think first thing for me that strikes me about boba is that it's called so many things. It's not just called one thing, right? People call it pearl tea. People call it bubble tea. People call it boba. But it's interesting that boba really hasn't galvanized around one thing that it's called, and yet still widely. Consume. Depending on what you're in the mood for, boba options range from the classic black milk tea to something as niche as sweet tea topped with salted cheese foam. But however you take your boba, its ability to take on so many different forms points to a deeper symbolism. That's the thing about Asian Americans. Asian Americans, like so many other racialized groups, is so multi-ethnic, multilingual. Right? Has so much complex.、Um, Parts to it that the fact that we, now we have many Asian Americans of all different backgrounds embracing boba really is a testimony to the Asian American concept as a as a group of people who have chosen to self-identify as a collective. While the term collective recognizes the diversity of Asian Americans, popular media often portrays the community as a monolith, a group that is one and the same. Boba is not easy to define, but the ubiquity of the drink speaks to the complexity of the community in which it was created. To learn more about how various Asian American foods have been shaped by issues of popular media, race, and labor, check out Robert's book *Dubious Gastronomy: The Cultural Politics of Eating Asian in the USA*, linked in the show notes. For our last story, we're bringing it back to the bubbly hiss of CO2. 
Maya Bernstein Shallot reports on the history and significance of seltzer in New York City. You know, doing seltzer, you become the historian, the ambassador of nostalgia because on a daily basis you handle bottles that are actually ancient. Meet Walter Backerman. Yeah, I'm uh, Walter Seltzman. He's delivered glass bottles of seltzer for over 50 years to a wide range of customers in New York, and he's still at it. Walter's father and grandfather were also seltzermen. The family business goes all the way back to 1919. You might have heard of a few of Walter's customers. Frank, who's actually Franklin Delano Roosevelt III. Jim Kelly was head at that time of Time magazine. Rachel Maddow, who became my friend, was really an intensely pleasurable person to be with. One of Walter's devoted customers happens to be my grandpa. My name is Richard J. Bernstein. I am 88, soon to be 89, and I was born in Brooklyn in Borough Park. Uh, When I grew up, which is in the 40s and 50s, it was, um, you might say, a lower middle class, primarily Jewish neighborhood. Who in your family drank the most seltzer? It was a kind of a natural thing for all of us to drink seltzer. I always think I was drinking seltzer since the time I was born. My grandpa described to me how seltzer delivery worked when he was a kid. The seltzer man would come to your house and bring the bottles. The bottle looks like, first of all, it usually has heavy glass. I think that's because it's carbonated. And it, um, it has a kind of handle that squirts out the seltzer. Are you listening? Yeah. That's the sound of seltzer. When my grandpa was young, he'd have seltzer fights with his cousins. As a teenager, he'd head to Cookie Soda Fountain in Flatbush for ice cream sodas. Seltzer, more than a drink, is also a link between my great-great-great-grandparents who arrived in the U.S. from what's now Russia and Austria and our family today. Seltzer first became popular in the 16th century, when naturally carbonated seltzer from the town of Niederseltas near Frankfurt, Germany, gained popularity as a drink with curative properties. Seltzer began to spread across the European continent. The Yiddish words seltzer and seltzerwasser come from the German, seltas. At the turn of the 20th century, more than 2 million Jews arrived in the U.S., fleeing violence and persecution in Eastern Europe. They brought with them, among other things, a love for seltzer. But it wasn't just Jews who drank seltzer. The sight of seltzerman in the streets of the city were were a ubiquitous component in the fabric of society. If you go back to anyone of a certain generation, virtually everyone who lived in New York would uh, completely remember Seltzer, Seltzer Man. My grandpa is more than just Walter's customer. He's also a huge fan. He's a wonderful character. He's uh, sort of jovial, outspoken. Um, he tells wonderful stories. Walter is wonderfully curious about people places and the history behind them. Since I'm a, a little uh, yenta myself, taking pictures of everyone, everywhere I go. Yenta in Yiddish means like a town gossip. Think your grandma who knows everyone's business or the woman who keeps a watchful eye over the neighborhood. Walter seems to get along with everyone, no matter who they are or what they do. Like a doctor takes to Hippocratic oath to heal the sick and, and to treat people you know, with compassion. I take the Celticratic oath, and that means I will deliver to people as long as they got money. Everyone will pay. I may have delivered to gangsters all throughout my life, and I actually got along with them well for one reason. 
I gave them something they wanted. I gave them nothing but respect. They treated me with nothing but respect, and our relationships were pleasant. So you take simple things like a cup of coffee, a glass of seltzer, and, you know, that's a connection to people. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, the way you, you pray, the, your political affiliation. None of that matters. It's a great equalizer. I asked my grandpa if there was anything that would ever keep him from drinking seltzer, and he said, No, I love drinking it now, you know. It's my favorite drink. My grandpa's in luck because Walter doesn't seem to want to stop delivering seltzer anytime soon. If uh, if I would stop doing it, you know, instead of being, I would lose my identity. Instead of being Walter the Seltzerman, it'd be Walter the. Walter brings glass bottles of seltzer to people's doorsteps, and he also brings joy to a ton of people. There is nothing as delicious as having, you know, a good glass of cold seltzer. Uh, particularly on a hot day. To learn more about the history of seltzer and how you can sign up for Walter's seltzer delivery, check out our show notes. And thanks for listening. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Maya bernstein Shallot, Cameron Berger, Sasha Cohen, Talvi Duong, Alicia Chan, and Armin Spengen. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.